twerking drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is Dave Harrison. In 1996, Dave joined the Edwin McCain Band, and for the next 10 years recorded six albums and co-produced two of them. Dave has also performed with Mia Sharp, Olivia Newton-John, Hootie and the Blowfish, John Hyatt, Carolyn Don Johnson, Rachel Proctor, Cindy Thompson, and many others. Dave currently lives in Nashville, where he stays busy as a freelance drummer and percussionist in the studio and live. As always, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find us on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the podcast. You can leave a rating and a review for the podcast. That helps us grow. Word of mouth is always helpful. So like I say every time, let's get to it. Here is Dave Harrison. I was on the road with a guy who worked a lot. You know, Edwin was, he's a road dog. He still is to this day. Now he mostly works in the acoustic trio now because it's easier for him. He makes more money and it's easier to manage. But it was uh, was a a huge job. And when the twins were born, I was just like, I've got to get off the road. I have Mm -hmm. to get off the road. So I came back, I quit the band, came back to Nashville, hung out my studio shingle. I had a, you know, few hits and a few misses. And, Mm -hmm. but I was like, oh man, you know, a mortgage, insurance, children. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing was stacking up financially. Like, I don't think that my studio career is going to support this. Hmm. And I've got to find something. I don't want to sell cars. I want to find something that I can put my heart into. Yeah. And uh, I had almost accidentally gotten into education because my, um, my wife is a first grade elementary school teacher. Yeah. And uh, in fact, right down here at Paragon Mills is where I kind of got my start. So, okay. Uh, yeah. I was subbing. Whenever I wasn't touring, I was just subbing because it was you know, something to do other than play golf. Yeah. And, uh, you know, which, which, I don't know, I don't know what kind of trade off that is, but, uh, uh, it's really interesting. I got to be really good friends with Pat McDonald because I was subbing at Paragon Mills because he was picking up Lily every day. She mm-hmm. went to school there. Mm-hmm. And while he was sitting in the traffic line, we got into these great conversations. And yeah. uh, I obviously had met him several times before. Yeah. I don't know if there's a drummer in Nashville that hasn't opened for Charlie Daniels at some point. No. Yeah. You I know? have too. And then you yeah, go and you play times. your gig and then you go watch the man. Yeah. You're like, Whoa, that yeah. dude can play. Yeah. yeah. He's not messing around. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I just, you know, I got more and more interested in it. And then I got interested in the fact that as a country, we incarcerate more people than any country ever has in the history of time. Right. And that the education system had been slowly turning into a pipeline for that incarceration. And it's not Okay. It's not okay. And I found that this is something that I can do. Yeah. And I decided it was something I was going to do. So I was, and I didn't have a degree for it or anything. I just went back to school, got my degree and, and, uh, you know, it was a total reset for me. Really? Yeah. Wow. I went to Treveca University and got my master's in education. All right. And so were you still playing at the, I mean, you, you had your, I wasn't touring, but I was playing around town. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And what, what did you get your degree in? Uh, it's an elementary education K through six. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you said you were subbing, and yeah. for some reason I was thinking that you were still doing. But so has it become a full time? Oh yeah. Thing. Yeah. yeah. I'm a I'm a, a a teacher of record is what they call it. I work for the for the state of Tennessee as a teacher of record. I teach fourth grade, uh-huh. and I teach uh, reading, math, science, and social studies. Wow. Everyone and- thinks I teach music, and I don't really know anything about music, so I wouldn't begin <laughs> to try to teach it. 
Uh, you could teach them about things that are maybe kids aren't ready for yes. in the music business. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I could do that for sure. Things I'm not ready for. <laughs> well, the thing I'm wondering is, is uh, what was your educational background before? I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I have my degree from West Virginia University. Right, it's right, an right. applied music degree in percussion there. And yeah. uh, did you study with Bob Bricklin? Bob Brighthop. Brighthop, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. I did. At yeah, Capital yeah. University. Yeah, yeah we, we went up and visited with them. Did okay. you call him Bongo Bob? Uh, no, but I know that was his nickname. Yeah, when right, I was up there, they were right, calling right. him Bongo Bob. And, right, and right. Our, our guy was uh, 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 Phil Faini, who's just amazing, amazing human being. Okay. And like a second dad to me. I started studying at the university when I was in third grade, I think. What? Yeah, just through the prep department. I was just studying with the guys that were um, uh, getting their degrees. Yeah. So I started studying very, very early. So I was a fixture. And in a, in, a, in a small town, he had a world famous percussion ensemble and he would play three nights and sell out a 1500 seat arena three nights in a row with his percussion ensemble. And I was at every concert from like 1967 to 1990, either as an audience member or playing in the ensemble. So mm-hmm. I really want, I mean, my parents offered to send me to Berkeley and I said, everything I need is right here. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into um, a, a huge thing for me was Randy Sanderbeck was there working on his masters. And I know his name has come up on the podcast has, a great it deal. Has, it has. And uh, he had come through town. I met him when I was in high school. He came in. I was playing a, a jazz gig at uh, a place called The Fox. And he was on the road with some friends. And they, they came in and, and they said, can Randy sit in and play? And I was like, of course. And I'd seen Randy play in the pet band at the basketball game. So I knew who he was. Yeah. But he got up on the, on the drum set. And I was like, that's the greatest drummer I've ever ever seen in my life and i can say unequivocally he's still the greatest drummer i've ever seen in my life he wow. is a vinnie caliuta drummer he's unbelievable he's also a master marimba player a master timpanist i mean he's as heavy a musician as you'll ever meet and you know murphy studied with him Will right. ellis studied with him you know yeah, we yeah. have that mutual uh, a love of randy society you know one of my favorite things that we were doing a show with tonic one time in jacksonville mm-hmm. florida mm-hmm. and uh kevin was playing with tonic and so right, he right. was over there with the monitor engineer and uh the monitor engineer at one point looked at looked at kevin and said i love this guy's playing he's got that sanderbeck slink and kevin just started laughing he goes that guy studied with randy longer than any of us <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Randy taught me how to play drums for real, you know. I mean, and I never had his facility. No one has his facility. Vinnie Caliuta asks him for advice. Wow. He's that um, good. Yeah. You know, he's amazing. And a great human being, you know, one of the one of the nicest people I've ever known. A combination. So. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, tell me about like West Virginia. Like so when you were growing up, when you did you have to audition when you went to school there? Oh no, no. There was no audition because like I said, I was already a fixture. Everybody knew wondering. who I was. Right. And right. you know, it had gotten to the point where in high school um, I would be studying with a guy and the two of us would audition for a band and I would get the gig. Yeah. So everybody kind of knew who I was. And um, Mr. Faini that ran the department went to music school with my parents. So okay. yeah, I was, you know, it was a done deal. I mean, yeah. I had a scholarship. I mean, and really coming in with a 1.7 GPA out of high school <laughs> and still managed to get a scholarship. And you're teaching our children. And I'm teaching your children. <laughs> yes, it's, it's been quite... Now, I will say, Trevecca, I had a 4.0. So Yeah, right, yeah, right. I, a, I grew up eventually. I, yeah, learned, right. I learned to like school. Yeah, yeah. But when I was a kid, and it was drums. I just 
cut school every day and stayed home and played drums. I just wanted to play drums. That's all I wanted to do. Me too, man. It was really just a manifestation of, of ADHD, which didn't get diagnosed till I was 50 years old. I was like, what? Why are you just figuring this out now? He goes, well, you're a drummer. You're supposed to have ADHD. Keith <laughs> like, Moon had ADHD. <laughs> That's, well, yeah. I, th- I think that it's, it's interesting that, uh, like, I went to school. I grew up in Columbus, so I went to Oh, right on. Yeah, so, uh, you know, around late in high school, I knew where I wanted to go. I knew where I wanted to study. Yeah, and it was right there. Right? Yeah, Bob's yeah. program was just notorious. Uh, Top-notch and, program, yeah. So uh, I was going out and sneaking in to see him play and right. to see other people play. So when I went to the audition... Uh, there's four of us sitting there waiting to go in. He walks out with his assistant, looks at all of us, and says, "Oh, hey, Matt, what's up?" Yeah, because he knew me. Yeah, you know. And the other three players, they're just it? like, "Man," yeah. and I don't think I ever saw them again. But right. I got... <laughs> <laughs> um, so applied music. Yep. Uh, tell me about uh, this uh, percussion ninety. Is that the that was the name. Well, it was it was percussion. Believe it or not, it was percussion sixty when I first saw it because I first went to my first show in sixty seven. This and is the ensemble. That's the ensemble, and then percussion seventy, percussion eighty, percussion ninety. Wow! So they just changed the decade. Now I don't know if they're still doing that because Mr. Finey retired um, twenty years ago. You know, so I don't know if they what they have going on now. Yeah. But uh, at the time, I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, to get into that percussion ensemble was difficult. And you had to play all the instruments. And you had mm-hmm. to play them well. Mm-hmm. And it was highly competitive. And it was great. I mean, the musicianship was unbelievable. Okay. You know, uh, Randy was just one of many people that played at an extremely high level. So, uh, and for me, it was just a dream come true. By the end, I was bringing in the, my own PA system and miking everything and recording it. And I was like, I was wow. like, you know, almost like running the show by the end. You yeah. know, I just loved it so much. Yeah. Did you carry that on? I mean, because I'm assuming that you did, you know, mallets and <clears throat> hand percussion, just all that different I stuff. dropped it the day I moved to Nashville, all of it. I just dropped all of it. I hated timpani, like, I hated timpani with a passion. I don't know why. I just mm-hmm. hated the instrument. I didn't like playing it. And mm-hmm. um, after I got my level, you know, you have to get a certain level on each instrument. Right, so right, once right. I got my timpani level, uh, I literally had a sale in the hallway and sold all of my timpani mallets. And then... <laughs> A few months later, I moved to Nashville, and I was in town a couple of weeks, and a guy that I knew before actually asked me to come down and record, and what do they wheel out? A timpani, and I'm sitting there playing it with marimba mallets with because I'd sold all my timpani mallets. <laughs> so, and, and I, didn't, I didn't pursue the keyboard thing, and I don't. I play drums. You know, and I, I felt weird about it for a long time. Like, I, sh- I should play the piano, or I should play the guitar, and it's like, if I don't want to, I don't have to. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, Tony Williams said he was being interviewed one time and a woman said, do you play any other instruments beside the drums? And he says, what? I don't play drums well enough to just play drums. Do you ask trumpet Mm. players the same question? Do you ask keyboard players the same question? I play drums. That's crazy. I do it fairly well. I've never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and you know, I can read a numbers chart, but I don't know what it means. I don't know what notes are in the minor six leading to the whatever. Mm -hmm. I know when I see an unusual chord coming up in a numbers chart, I might, lay a symbol in there or I might, you know, mm-hmm. acknowledge the fact that the harmonic movement is going to a new place. Right. But I'll leave it to the keyboard players and the bass players and those mm-hmm. guys to, mm-hmm. to know what that really means. Yeah. I'm just going to try to set a bed where they can do their job and do it right. comfortably. Right, right. I just love that. I just want to just reiterate. I love that Tony Williams response. Oh, yeah. 
And he had another favorite one too. He said, asking a drummer not to play loud is like asking a bass player not to play low. I love that. <laughs> Cause I mean, this is, you were talking about a guy who brings a 24 inch kick drum with two racks and three floors yeah. and beats the crap out of them on a piano trio with pi- you know, acoustic piano, upright bass and Tony yeah. and kills, yeah. absolutely kills it, you know, yeah. but you know, Tony's on his own. You know, he's over, he's over here and, you know, obviously sparked from that. You get your Steve Gadd, your Terry Bozio, your Vinny Caliuta. But, yeah. you know, at the time when he was 17 years old and he was playing drums like no one else ever had before. And yeah. you're going, OK, where did he get that? Like, I don't hear Philly Joe in, mm-hmm. in his playing. I don't mm-hmm. hear it. It's obviously there. I know that he went back and studied, but he quickly yeah. found his own path. And like Miles said, he could fall down the stairs and that's a rhythm. That's a thing. Wow. Yeah. And he seemed like he, he just, he evolved over time as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most just, definitely. Because you listen to him later and you're just like, well, this is a, just a completely different oh, person. Yeah. And yeah, I'm such a fan, man. I'm such he's, a fan. I mean, it's just so amazing. I loved, uh, we, uh, my son and I were listening to Pat's and he was talking about, you know, sitting behind Tony's kit and just sounds like shit, dude. <laughs> this is terrible. But when Tony plays it, it sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, and then Tony's up there playing brushes with a black dot clear I was like, what are you doing <laughs> what, are you, what are you bothering with that you know it's so funny wow uh, it, uh i wanted to, to ask you about the session that you did yesterday i saw a post and i just had to write this down um you played percussion and i'm not so can you tell me about that session? um yeah i was working on uh johnny p's new record and i did his first record which was great um sterling campbell played drums on that record and i played percussion and we tracked it live like working at goffrey's place was like working at the snake pit you know, it was, mm. in fact, the first song on that record, Johnny was standing in front of the drum set holding a microphone, and that's the vocal track. Wow. Like the commitment to doing it old school is why it sounds so incredibly old school. Mm-hmm. So they decided to do uh, uh, some more tracks, and they just got it in their head that they really want James Gadsden to play drums. And uh, Gad- Gadsden. And uh, so he was supposed to come and do it in February. And I was going to be kind of like, I was going to track with him if he was comfortable with it. But I was also going to supply him with a lot of drums and kind of babysit him and tech for him and make sure he had everything he needed. And he got sick. He's, mm. He just turned 77. So, you wow, know, when, okay. when a 77 man says, I'm in the hospital with an asthma attack, he's not coming to track. You know? yeah, yeah. So they ended up going out to Los Angeles and doing the tracks and then bringing him back. So okay. yesterday I played uh, a lot of congas and shakers and tambourines and yeah. little you know, jingly janglies, I call them. Yeah. So uh, it was, you know, it was really um, uh, one of the things that got me uh, really thinking about um, what it means to be a good percussionist as I was doing a, a kind of a modified tumbao on the congas mm-hmm. and you know, you had to do that. And my dip was always sound rushed against James and mm-hmm. I knew it was right, mm-hmm. but it didn't sound mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you want to be right or do you want to feel right? Those are the two things you have to look at and go, now I got to feel right. And yeah. so I was like, I've got to, every time I did the dun dun, you know, part of the part of the conga pattern, it was rushed. It sounded rushed against James. Yeah. And so I listened to it and I was like, man, I've got to just relax this whole feel. And I actually started by trying to think about swinging it just a little bit, just to give it that little bit later uh-huh, kind of uh-huh, feel and lock uh-huh. into what James was doing. James was unbelievable. Like when you when you are listening at that level to a drummer, you are really inside his head and inside his music. And it's amazing to me like how inaccurate his kick drum was mm. and how inaccurate his hi-hat was at times and how dead on his snare drum was every single time and that's that's what creates that that cool thing that he's got 
you know, for me, it was, he played on Dancing Machine by the Jackson Five. If he didn't, if he only played on that his whole life, I would have been just as excited to go track with him. You yeah, know? yeah. So, um, you know, I went back in and, and recut the conga track on it and, and got what was, I felt like a little bit more relaxed and it fell into that pocket a little bit. But yeah. that's that intangible, how do you teach that? You know? Right. Well, and people talk about, you know, drum machines. Well, it's just, you, you can't just recreate the human feel. And, and we throw that around a lot and it's never really quite defined. It's just, it's talked about and it's just a very kind of out there, ethereal concept. Yeah. And uh, you just have to experience it. You have to yeah. listen to it. And I've heard those situations before where um, I know a buddy of mine uh, did some percussion behind Kenny Arnoff. Uh-huh. And he was really surprised at that, that particular session, how things moved yeah. and everything like that. And he was being a little critical of it. He's like, this guy, I mean, I, I was really surprised. And I'm thinking in my mind, yeah, but... I don't know, man. I think the proof is in the work. I mean, Kenny works. <laughs> you yeah. Know, like what he does. You yeah, know? yeah. Somebody told me about that, about Jeff Picaro one time, that they put him up on a grid, and it was just all over the place. And of course it is. That's why it sounds so good. That's why it's so human. You really want to put Richie Hayward on a grid? Yeah. What he does is magical. It's not math. It's magic. One of the things that I was really glad of is that I learned how to record on two-inch tape. Yes, I learned how to do that. And I feel bad for people that didn't have that experience. Mm -hmm. Like you really got to get a take. And if you screw something up, you got to live with it. So when your friends are listening to it, you know when to cough. (laughs) I don't want to catch that backbeat. You know, know, and and you just had to, you know, and believe me, I've left things on tracks. I just, oh God, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't believe that Mm -hmm. lasted. And then Pro Tools came along. Yeah. And so when it first came along and I was watching someone comp drum tracks for the first time and we were making an Edwin record and I was just sitting there going, this is wrong. This is terrible. This is awful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not going anywhere. The shift was, uh, I think what happened was uh, a lot of producers used to come from being musicians. And then all of a sudden you had all these producers that were coming from being engineers and they have a different standard. And, and, you know, Mm -hmm. just because you can do something doesn't mean you should Mm-hmm. do it mm-hmm. and the the people that are really successful in creating great music ignore that you know don't put 15 microphones on the guitar and then decide in the mix which one you want to use make a commitment stick a 57 or a 321 mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. make a commitment right there mm-hmm. you're you're making a record mm-hmm. so you're committing to this uh the guy that goes by the name bosco man that produces sharon um the dap kings Sharon Wright and the Dap Kings. Okay. And he did yeah. the Amy Winehouse record. Oh, cool. And someone was like, how'd you get that kick drum sound? He said, I put a $25 mic on the floor, two feet in front of the kick drum. That's what I did. You know, when I record horns, they stand around a 57. And when I'm mixing, if the trombone's too loud, the trombone's too loud. You got to live with it. That's it. Yeah. And you really want to dissect all those great Motown records and, you know, yeah. you know, uh, quantize that beautiful tambourine work? No, it's perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, that just happened. It's just something that happened. Well, and one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was yeah. we were talking about our kids and what they're listening to yeah. and the music that we inevitably introduced them to. Yeah. And you mentioned something. You said kids just don't have music these yeah. days. They're re- and, you know, the ones that are becoming musicians are rejecting it roundly. And like you said, they're, they're wearing a Pink Floyd T-shirt. They're listening to Zeppelin. They're listening to... My kid is all over the map. You know, when he was yeah. really young, he asked me a bunch of questions about the Isley Brothers. Yeah. And uh, I was just like, I'm just so proud that you're that into the Isley <laughs> Brothers, you know. But he listened to what I listened to. You're right. You know, so it was Rufus. I'm an R&B nut. 
Okay. You know, uh, Average White Band's my favorite band of all time. Yeah. Of all t- Robbie McIntosh, I think, was the greatest drummer that ever lived. Wow. I really do. Uh, you listen to that track on Person to Person, and you try to reconcile that with, this is a 22-year-old Scottish kid. Oh, I know. Lays that track down with the authority I've never heard on a track in my entire life. It's brutal. Mm-hmm. It is so amazing. And, you know, it's just sad. He left me with eight songs. But everything I've ever done is connected to those eight songs in some way or another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just always wanted to be Robbie McIntosh. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, I wanted to live longer. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. I think right. he died at 25 or something like that. You know, growing up, I was going to move to Los Angeles. I was going to be the next John Robinson. That was my, mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't realize. I'm only beginning to realize how great a drummer John Robinson is. It's, my, it's the deepest pocket I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. But, um, I was going to go to L.A. That was my thing. And uh, um, I spent 10 years working on my undergraduate because road opportunities would come up and I would take them. You know? oh, and then uh, okay. one year I decided to move to uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, and then drive into Boston and study with Gary Chafee. And so I took some time to do that and then came back to school. And eventually I got to the point where I was like, you know, if I, I hadn't taken any core at all. So I wasn't on a graduation track. I want to play with the jazz ensemble and the percussion ensemble, the wind ensemble. That's what I cared about. Uh-huh. And then as I got a little bit older, I was like, you know, I, I like oceanography. I like psychology. I like being a student for the first time in my life. I was right. like, I really like this. This yeah. is good. And I ended up graduating. And I went out to L.A. and uh, not to live, but to just check it out. And I got there, and it's crazy town. And this is in the late 80s, you know. And it's just, people there are insane. I mean, I'm from a small town in West Virginia, so I get out there, and I was like, I can't live here. This is Mars. There's no way I can live here. And I've been to New York a bunch of times, and I knew I couldn't live there because the pace is just too fast. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what am I going to do? And I was sitting home one day, and we had Cinemax, Mm -hmm. and the show came on, uh, Sessions with Chet Atkins. It was uh, live at Lankford Auditorium. Larry London was playing drums. Oh. I love Larry London so yeah, much. Yeah. Um, David Hungate was on bass. Wow. Michael McDonald was playing keyboards. Uh, it was Mark Knopfler. It was, oh. you know, it was unbelievable. It was amazing. And I, I sat there and I watched that and I was like, I got to go to Nashville. If this is what's going on in Nashville, that's where I need to be. So yeah. I came down and visited. I had a friend of mine that I played in a band with in West Virginia, went to college with that had been here already for about five years. And uh-huh. I came down to visit him and stayed with him and his wife. And we went to people's houses and they had a house. And we had a barbecue. Right. And you're like, what do you do? And I said, well, we're trying to get the band going. You know, I do odd jobs and stuff. I said, you're living in a house and we're having a barbecue. Nobody in LA is doing this. Nobody in New York is doing this. Mm-hmm. There's a musical middle class here. And I said, mm-hmm. this is where I'm going. So mm-hmm. I moved here in 1990, in October of 90. Of 90. Uh, got my uh, diploma in the mail. and moved here uh had to sell my beautiful rogers drum set to have enough money to rent a u-haul to get down here and i moved down here in 90 and just started doing the stupid stuff that everybody does i was answering ads in the scene you know looking for a drummer for a project and i'd go and check it out and it was usually a bunch of idiots but i did meet the first musician i met when i moved to nashville was a guy named max ratliff and i just played a gig with him saturday night wow we played together in two different bands and he's amazing he's an amazing guitar player so um and i just started beating the pavement i could not get arrested i didn't know how the business worked i didn't know anything about it and i was a little bit older too i was 27 28 years old when i moved here 28 i think yeah so it was difficult you know i i worked uh you know, uh, painting gas stations, working mm-hmm. in factories, right. just whatever I could find, and then just tried to find gigs. Now, it, it, did you consider like, well, this this town is notorious for country music, 
And so I had never heard country music. I'd never listened to it. I had never played in my life with an acoustic guitar player ever. Yeah. When I moved here. So what's, yeah. what was your take on that? I mean, were you like, okay, I'm going to be open to all things. This is what I want to do. I mean, how do you compromise? I mean, was there compromise? I guess is the question in your vision of how you're going to make a living as a drummer. No, no, it was just, can I make a living as a drummer? Okay. Can I, can I get a paycheck please? You know, I was working, you know, I got to the point where I was playing five or six different bands. I had a gig almost every night in town. And if I made 80 bucks by the end of the week, that was a good week. Mm -hmm. So of course I had a day job, you know, because 80 bucks a week ain't going to pay for nothing. Right. Right. So, um, it was just, you know, can I, can I, do this? Can I, can I make a living playing music? And also when I moved to town, it was, um, the, the changing of the guard had already happened. Like Larry London was the man, you know? Um, and then it was when I moved to town, Eddie bears was the guy. Yeah. I mean, he was on everything. Yeah. That especially was at that the time. Man. Yeah. For sure. Early nineties. And, uh, um, you know, I was working at Walden books at the Hickory hollow mall yes, one day, yeah, and Larry walked in oh, wow. and I knew him. Uh, through, you know, seeing him playing videos and, mm-hmm. and just loved his playing so much. Mm-hmm. The first 45 I ever had was Amos Moses, which he played on with Jerry Reed okay. back in the early, early 70s, late mm-hmm. 60s, whatever it was. So, I, and I, I was looking at him because he didn't really look like Larry. He didn't have the pompadour and he wasn't wearing a Hawaiian shirt, you know. And I was like, is that Larry London walking in here? And then I saw the DW touring jacket. So I went over and I talked to him and I had performed with percussion, um, uh, was it been percussion 90? Um, at no, it would have been percussion eighty at that time with Randy and all those guys. We right. performed at PASIC in um, Knoxville, so I got into a conversation about. Larry remembered exactly which drummer I was out of six on a line. He knew exactly which one I was, what color drums I played. He made a remark about my cymbals being up super high. Like he knew, he remembered seeing me play, and he was the nicest human being I've ever met in my life. And uh, he invited me to a session. So I got to go watch him That's work in the studio. Wonderful. I walked in and uh, Hungate was the bass player. Uh-huh. I think uh, it might've been Matt Rawlings. I can't remember who all it was. It was at the Little Pig. But you know, he said, do you have a card? And at the time I had a card. I don't have a card. stupid. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. So I gave him yeah. my card and he called me. You know, I didn't thought he's never going to do that. He's not going to follow through. Why would he? You know? Yeah. And he called me up and said, you know, be at the Little Pig at nine o'clock and I'll be there. You know, and he was in there warming up, and it was like watching a monster. It was like mm-hmm. watching a monster play the drums. Mm-hmm. He was inhuman, is what he was. And uh, he introduced me to everybody. He goes, this is Dave. He's the new guy in town. You know, uh, told the engineer, set him up the exact same mix you're giving me, and I want him to sit outside the drum room and hear everything that I'm doing. And it was like, you know, four years of college packed into three hours. Right. I couldn't believe it. I right. couldn't believe how kind he was. Yeah. I tried to take that, you know, when... You know, whatever. I got I got a gig, and so I ha- ended up with fans or whatever people that wanted no, to talk yeah, to me about no, my drumming. No, I get it. I get it. And um, I tried to remember that always. You know, take the time, yeah. be kind, pay it forward. You know, yeah. Larry taught me well. And I will say this: I've said this a million times. Larry London would be extremely proud of the drumming community in Nashville right now. That's I have great, never seen anything like this before. That's a great the, the, thing. The great friendships that we have, mm-hmm. and the camaraderie, and the rooting for each other, and nobody's mm-hmm. competing with each other. There's mm-hmm. gigs. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of gigs. Country music is the new modern, you know, there's the new pop music. And there's plenty of gigs for everybody if you can play. Mm-hmm. And everybody has everybody's back. You know, mm-hmm. there's nobody that wouldn't give you the shirt off their back. Yeah. I love this. This has been absolutely amazing. And you've noticed a, a change since oh, you've God, been here. Oh, God, yes. Oh, no. And I don't think this exists. I don't think it's ever existed anywhere at any time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it exists on any other instrument or in any other town. 
I think this is unique to Nashville and it's yeah. unique to this time right yeah. now. I think the drumming community in general, I mean, as long as I've been involved, even in Columbus, I, I felt like there was a camaraderie. There, there was a, there was a community. I know what you're saying. There was this underlying community yeah. and support uh, that we even experienced through the podcast. Yeah. Um, well, but, unless just to protect us from all the drummer jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody to commiserate with. That's right. They made jokes about my drool. <laughs> right, right. But I know what you're saying. There's a there's another level, and then we experience that out uh, through events like the drummer jam and yeah. other things like that. In uh, 1995, around uh, a couple days before Thanksgiving, I got a call. Now, let me preface that. Uh, Edwin's saxophone player and band leader and I went to high school together. So, okay. uh, you know, he would come in and say, I'm playing with this guy. We're starting to make some noise, you know. And and uh, and then they came a couple times and played at the Exit Inn after they had their original drummer, uh, T.J. Hall. And uh, they would invite me to, they'd say, hey, man, we're playing at the Exit Inn. Why don't you bring some percussion stuff and sit in with us? So I'm sitting there playing songs I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't have a record out. And, yeah. you know, I didn't know anything about it. And I'm playing. And then in 95, around Thanksgiving, I got a call and said, TJ hurt his back and he needs to take a couple weeks off. And can you be in Cincinnati tomorrow? We've already FedExed you a tape. Can you be in there, there tomorrow? You're going to leave your car parked at the airport in Cincinnati, jump on the tour bus, and we're going to fly you back to Cincinnati. Yeah. And so I said, yes. So Edwin was playing a three-hour show back then. What were you doing I was, that um, time. you know, I was working for uh, an actuarials firm as an office clerk, mm-hmm. you know, just the most boring, awful job you could possibly have. And uh, just, you know, I was doing a lot of custom sessions, mm-hmm. you know, stuff off the card stuff um, mm-hmm. and a lot of um, uh, a fair amount of demos, but um, very few on the card things. I really wasn't much of a mm-hmm. I didn't get into that you know, six songs in three hours stuff. I don't right. like it. I didn't yeah. like it then. I don't like it now. So I, yeah. I never really got into it. So I was just, you know, scrabble, just hard scrabbling, yeah. trying to make a living and everything. Okay. And so I get a call and it's just a two week thing. And I was working in a band called The Keep and that band was amazing. My friend Max, the guitar player I just told you about, and John Dedrick was the keyboard player, and Lee Hendricks was the bass player who plays with Eric Church. Wait, now. there was a picture. You posted a picture yeah. of that band. And yeah. is John in that picture? Yeah. Yeah. I got to take you a closer look, look at, at it. it. John's in the picture. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we were trying to get a record deal, and we, I mean, we rehearsed all the time. So I was mm-hmm. really committed to it. So I really went out to Edmund just to make some money and sub for a couple of weeks, but had no intention. And his record had come out on Atlantic, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't really like the record very much at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, Edmund was clearly extremely talented, but the mm-hmm. record just, ooh, you know, mm-hmm. you spent $250,000 on that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. was my attitude at the time. Mm-hmm. When I got out there, what I discovered was Edmund was the the dream gig I've been waiting my whole life for. Mm. I just realized mm-hmm. it from the first gig on, the way what? he sang, the way he plays the acoustic guitar. He's unbelievable. He's mm. the best acoustic guitar player I've ever played with, by far. Wow. Just pocket. You wouldn't. He's a frustrated drummer. <laughs> so he just plays guitar, and when he's, you know, in his pocket is deep. So we played together for two weeks, and, you know, I brought a different sensibility to his music as sure. more of an R&B based sensibility that he really connected to because he's an earth wind and fire junkie and okay. you know so um, he you know they they really wanted to make that change you know and uh, so um, I came back home and uh, let's see uh, it was in January they called and said we want you to be the full time guy and again it was you know can you be in Allentown day after tomorrow with the show learned ready yeah. to go you know yeah. kind of deal so I literally had to go to Forks and buy cases because I had soft <laughs> cases for my drums, you know. And yeah. I had to, so um, 
uh, got all that together and went up and went out on the road with him. And that was that massive run that we were doing. Jewel was our opening act at the time. Wow. Yeah. She was just solo acoustic. Opening yeah. Act. And, and, uh, uh, we traveled all over the place and every club we played sold out. And, you know, I took pictures of people just lying around the block and it was yeah. the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. Were you in a relationship at that time? Yes, I was married. Yeah. You were married. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My first wife, Gigi. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we talked about it. We didn't have kids yet. So we talked about it and, and, uh, she said, yeah, you got to go do this. Obviously. Okay. Yeah. Kind of just want to throw that in there. Just yeah. kind of see where we're at. On yeah. This, yeah. So, on this. Yeah. um, uh-huh. she was working as a, um, uh, ad executive at the Nashville scene. How many days was that tour? Oh, were- well that, that tour for that, for the band was, uh, they, they ran an ad in Rolling Stone magazine and it, he had a hit called solitude. And the, the tagline on the ad was with 327 dates last year, how did he find time for solitude? <laughs> Good you know? Lord. And so, I mean, I wasn't there for the entire run of that, but just the taste of it that I got just wore me out. I mean, it was unbelievable. And mm-hmm. I, I think there were times we would do three weeks straight without a night off. Mm-hmm. And Edwin, if you've, if you never heard him, he's a singing fool. That guy's got, yeah. you know, pl- uh, I always call it titanium vocal cords. You know, he would go mm-hmm. out there and just kill for three hours every night. And it was vocal driven. So three you know? hours, that's, I mean, that's pretty amazing because a lot of times on a tour like that, you're thinking, well, you're doing a 45 or an hour and a half at the most right. set. No, we were headlining. I mean, it was almost like Bruce Springsteen-ish. You know, we eventually learned that, you know, when the lights came on at the end of the show, two thirds of our audience had left. So we started cutting it back, you know, so, yeah. you know, but, um, this was before, you know, he had a, a small rock hit with, um, with solitude, Darius Rucker sang the bridge. Okay. So, um, that was kind of his, that was almost his foray into Atlantic records, you know? Okay. So, uh, and then he was actually on lava, which was a small imprint with Jason. At Flons. the time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then uh, they closed down all those satellite records. So they folded him into Atlantic. And nobody at Atlantic really was that interested in Edwin McCain. Mm. You got to remember, like, when we would go do big radio shows, it was track acts. And here we are, a bunch of middle-aged guys that play mm. instruments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would get to shows and people didn't even know how to deal with us. You know, you don't have tracks? No, we play instruments. You know, it was really weird. Wow. So, um uh, so, and you know, uh, really it would have been doomed if it wasn't for the song I'll be. And he wrote that song I'll be. And I think I may have been one of the first people to ever hear it. He pulled me aside at the Bilo center one time and said, man, I just wrote this. I want to see what you think of it. And it was that line. I'll be better when I'm older. I was like, I think it's going to be a hit. I really do. I think this is going to, this is going to rock. Yeah. And, uh, so we went through, um, we went in, we, we got off tour for a little bit. We went into a studio in Atlanta with just us and just started uh-huh. cutting some stuff. And then I went, I came back to Nashville and I had been working with Matt Rawlings on, mm. he was producing a lot of stuff on the keep. And so he and Kenny Greenberg were producing something and they asked me to come in and play drums on it. So while I was there, I played him the stuff that we were doing with Edwin and Matt was like, you think you can get Edwin to come to Nashville and let us record him? I was like, yep, I can probably do that. You know, yeah, that sounds yeah. doable. Yeah. So I talked to Edwin about it and he said, sure. So we went in and, and Matt and Kenny ended up producing Edwin's second album, Misguided Roses. Wow. And they did a wonderful job with the song I'll Be, but the label wanted a different sound. And that's where Matt Serletic came in. And Matt Serletic was flying real high with Matchbox 20 at the time. Okay. You know, so okay. they wanted, and he'd been with Collective Soul. Oh, so they wanted him to come in and, and redo the track, you know. Okay. And so they released that thing and it was just dogging you know it was just dogging and the label wasn't really turning on the the publicity gas you know you, yeah. you know when it's on yeah when jewel was our opening app by the time we got to los angeles there was a three-page spread in the la times about jewel and she's our opener 
Right. And all the tickets were bought yeah. for the Roxy show were all bought by her fans. Yeah, you because you were talking about 95, 96 when yeah. she was. No, this, yeah, yeah, 96. Yeah. Right, 96. right. And I'm like, she was just coming wow, out. Oh, she was opening up for y'all. Yeah. And then that. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, yeah. you know, one thing I learned too is uh, be really nice to your opening act because you will be <laughs> opening for them before it's over. <laughs> and that happened several times. We've had Train as an opening act, we've had uh, uh, Patty Griffin was our opening act wow. for a whole tour. Yeah. Um, be nice to them because yeah. especially in the rock world, you're going to open for them before it's all, before yeah. they close the book on this, you, yeah. you're going to be opening for the verb pipe, verve pipe, you know, yeah. They, yeah. they were great guys, you know, uh, yeah. semi-sonic, yeah. you know, all of those nineties bands, you know, and, and we didn't, everybody was, it wasn't, we, not everybody had a tour bus. A lot of people were in vans and trailers and mm-hmm. everybody was just nice to everybody. We were, this is your dressing room too. This yeah. is your food too. Just, you know, we, we share. Yeah. So, yeah. And it served us well. So uh, the song Albi came out and we were dead in the water. I mean, the, we always use the joke like a, a Bugs Bunny cartoon. The, the plane is crashing and then it just stops like two inches from the ground and doesn't hit the ground because the show Dawson's Creek featured the song um, on their season finale of their first season. And we sold 45,000 records the next day. Wow. Atlantic was like, what is this? You know, people yeah. were reacting to the song. So yeah. then they turned on the gas and they kept it on. It was a slow build, but I think it stayed in the top 40 for over a year. Yeah. You know, it was a top, we did a video, you know, um, that was silly. Uh, but we did a video that was in the VH1 top 10 videos yep. for months and months and months, you know, and, yeah. and none no, of us could believe it was even happening. Yeah. You know, it was just weird. No, I had mentioned it uh, when I was, talking to some buddies and and even to my wife uh where i was talking about uh getting together to talk to you and i Uh said do you do you remember that song i'll be and she doesn't you know it's like sometimes titles eludes us right but uh my weak attempt at trying to sing the chorus and she's like oh yeah i know that song yeah Yeah. everybody they're like classic song song. yeah i mean that was a bucket list item for me you know play on a classic song play on something that's going to be around forever and ever and ever and i got a chance to do that you know so you guys cut that in Nashville originally with Matt Rawlings in his basement yeah okay and, uh, Matt Rawlings is an incredible keyboard player he's unbelievable here he's in genius. Nashville that yeah. for people that don't know and uh it started very young yes uh but the version that we hear is a different producer yes Matt Serletic did that one in okay. Atlanta we went to Atlanta I think Triclops is where we cut that okay and you knew Matt Rawlings when you were recording yeah i was playing there. with that band the keep and then one day right. we did a show at douglas corner and he okay. just walked up to me and said hey man let's hang out yeah. and then the next thing i knew he was talking about producing the band and right. and so the very first session with the keep i walked in and it was michael rhodes on bass matt rawlings on piano ray herndon on guitar i mean you couldn't put a needle in my ass with a jackhammer that day I was just like, wow one of these things is not like <laughs> so uh and I, you know i I held my ground, and I and I, and I yeah. was very cognizant of the fact that maybe one of the reasons that I was there was because it's a lot more hassle to get another drummer to come in, and maybe that's why Chad Cromwell wasn't there, or or mm. you know one of their buddies, mm, yeah. or maybe I was holding my own. Yeah, you know, maybe it was going to be okay. Yeah, I learned so much from Matt. He taught the greatest thing he taught me. He said, "Dude, if you're doing another take, do something different, because there's a reason you're doing another take." So mm. don't play it the same way twice. Just do something different. So he got me out of the idea of coming up with a fill that goes into the second chorus. Just play. You know, and, and Ferroni actually helped me with this, too. In an article I read, he said, when you go to do a fill, don't think about the fill. Think about the time. And then whatever fill you play is going to be magical. It's going to work. And mm. that's why Ferroni, you know, 
he's perfectly happy mm-hmm. to do that because it's in time in a certain way that makes it magic. So that was a great training ground for me. And I got to meet um, and work with Tom Rohde. We brought Tom in to do oh, the percussion gosh, stuff. What a sweet guy. Bless his heart. Bless yeah, his heart. They're yeah. one, of the, one of the most fantastic human beings alive. The session that you did with the new producer or working with the new producer that for recutting right did you do was it just that song or was it the whole record we just we they flew us in like we were on the road and they brought us in just to cut that one song they want the label wanted that song recut so it's really interesting the first forty thousand records that were sold has matt rawlings production version wow and then every other record pressed after that has matt serletics what was that experience like how did you was there a different approach or it was it was a night and day approach it was a night and day approach. And, and, and typically, you know, one of the things, you know, uh, he came to me and he said, what, what feel are you playing going into the second verse? And I was like, I'm trying really hard not to know. And he's like, no, I really want you to come up with a fill and I want you to execute that fill. And, you know, he'd been working with rock bands that maybe weren't necessarily studio savvy or that okay. kind of thing. So, um, you know, it was very, very different. And then there was a lot of quantizing and a lot of, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was just, but it was big business. It was, you know, I feel like I may have been one of the last guys to come through and make half a million dollar records. We had budgets that were, you know, five, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000, you know. What so year was this? This was 97, 98, 99, around then. Okay. 90, 98, I think, was when Albie was a hit. So we probably cut it in 97. And then we did the Messenger record, and that was the big record. That was the one that was following up with the big hit. And uh, we rented out Tree Studios in Atlanta for three months. We hired Bob Clear Mountain to mix the record before we even started making it, which mm-hmm. was, that's a hefty price tag. Hired Matt Serletic. He brought in Noel Golden, one of my favorite record producers in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met him on that record. He was amazing. And, of course, in typical fashion, Edwin shows up with two songs. He's got two songs. We're like, dude, we're here. You know, yeah, yeah. Edwin writes songs faster than anybody I've ever seen in my life. He's yeah. like, give me a minute, give me a minute. And he goes into a room and comes back and bam. Wow. But I think it's all circulating in his head. And, and he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't write the term paper until the night before it's due. Sure, He's just sure. that guy. Yeah. You know? so, he uses that, that time to pressure yeah. him, the creativity. So that, that album was very, very different because it was a, um, it was a much more lavish production. You know, we did the M- Misguided Roses record in Matt's Basement. And uh, that was a very uh, intimate, you know, kind of deal. And then Matt Rollins, yeah. Okay. And then we go to Matt Sherletic, and he's got the big studio, and he brings in his refrigerator cabinets full of gear that he has of his own, and he brings in techs. Tony Adams was my drum tech on that record. You know, Tony? I don't. He's a he does a lot of tech where I'm not really. I, I see him on Facebook, and I know he's on the road, but I'm not sure if he's playing or teching. He's a good player. He's a great player. Yeah. But I mean, Tony came in, took every single piece of hardware off every drum I owned, and sat at a piano with a mallet. And hit the shell with a piano and found the fundamental note of. I mean, it was science. Is Man. it better? I don't know. I just usually tune a drum till it sounds good. And, right, you know, right. I try right. to keep it simple, but I mean, it was just the way it worked. You know, yeah. we always joked about like if anybody would have walked into one of our sessions, they would have sworn that the band was the text and that the text was the band. <laughs> you know, we're nice. just we're just guys. You know, we're just. I mean, musicians. we're journeymen musicians. Did yeah. you enjoy that that type of work? You know, there that was a luxury of, of, of saying, okay, you know what? Today, our goal for today is to get a drum track on Promise of You. We're going to build a loop. And then uh, once we get the loop edited in the way we want it, then you're going to track the drums on it. And, you, and I'm going to play with the guys or whatever, but they only play it one time and then they leave. And then the rest is just me mm-hmm. getting that track. And I mentioned that one because it was another one of those, 
Yeah, I really felt like I was hitting the crosshairs on that click. I felt like I was right on it. But um, Matt kept going, dude, I need you to get above it. I need you to come in early on those backbeats. I need you to be above the click, get the click behind you. And we finally got to a place where I felt like I had a really good take on it. And, and of course, then they dumby 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 and fix the little things or whatever because mm-hmm, that's what they mm-hmm. do. Sure. And then you go back and listen to it and it's such a relaxed track. And that's the great thing of having a great set of ears in the control room. Somebody that really, you know, hears those kind of things. Yeah. And, you know, Matt Chaletic was incredible. Yeah. You know, he was in a, he was playing at a molecular level. I've never seen anybody drag a waveform out and, you know, all the things that people take for granted today. This was brand new. Well, we weren't right. even cutting to two inch. We were cutting directly to Pro Tools. 20 bits had just come out. Wow. So this was the beginning of all of that, uh-huh. you know, and it took a little getting used to, but we had great sounds. And then here's the irony. Um, Noel Golden's mixes because and now you're in Pro Tools. So as you're tracking, he's constantly mixing. He's mixing the record the whole way, making it. And we have these great mixes that we're totally in love with. And then we ship everything off to Bob Clearmountain, the greatest mixer of all time. And you get the record back. And you're like, eh. Uh, oh, kind of wow. liked it better. You know, these, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. It was weird. I mean, the first thing he did was go in and replace all these drum sounds. I had killer drum sounds. I was using a, a Nashville Slingerland kit that Craig oh. Wright has now. You know, but uh, yeah. um, I was using that kit, and it, we we had everything you wanted. You know, the room's mic were Coles ribbons. The room was phenomenal. We had killer sounds. Yeah, Clearmountain's got a product to sell. So before he even gets serious about mixing, he's replacing and. You know, wow. So it was just, it's, it's the biz. Right. And again, you have to let go. Yeah, you got to let go. And in the end, uh, the first single came out. It was Could Not Ask For More. We had 117 pop ads the first week. It was a hit. Yeah. So what am I going to do, complain? It, yeah. You know, I mean, we didn't make money off that song because everyone didn't write it. But um, we made money in that a lot more people came out to see our shows. And, mm-hmm. you know, we built mm-hmm. up. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it, was, it was successful. Yeah. You know. We did the Messenger record, and then the next record we did was called Far From Over. And mm. that one was a, a an absolute reaction to the, the, the super big style of making records. We wanted to do something different. So we held up in Willie Nelson's studio down at Predinalis. Awesome. Went down there for a couple of months. And uh, we uh, hired Greg Archilla to produce and engineer, but we also listed every band member individually as a, as a producer on the record. I was going to say, you have a co-producing uh, credit. Yeah. Um, it, was that part of that? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and again, remember, we're talking about a guy who writes a song and then brings it in and then we're tracking it. it the, the song is literally 30 minutes old and we're, we're doing mm-hmm, a track on mm-hmm. it. So uh, arranging all of those things. And when you're a drum set player, that's what you're really doing. You're arranging the song. Your yeah. drum part is the arrangement of the song. Right, right. So it was my, you know, that first couple of weeks of tracking, that was my time. And I felt like I was really defining the arrangements and I was like, hey, you know what? Why don't we put a break here and then bring that second chorus back in on a cold hit? And, you know, those kind of things that you think of from the drum set, yeah. that becomes the arrangement of the right. you know, and I, album. I, and I know it's it's Edmund, Edwin McCain, but were you guys, with? was there a band thing going on? It was on? as structured as a band. Okay. I mean, we I, the way I look at it, we were more of a band than a lot of bands that were, you know, advertising as a band. Because we were cut in. Like, I was cut in. He gave me... Uh, uh, a very generous percentage of the writer shares of his royalties. Man, that's he cut crazy. everybody into every piece of the pie, and uh, I mean the pie wasn't huge. I didn't get rich off it by any stretch of the imagination, but his generosity was uh, absolutely unheard of. 
People thought yeah. he was insane. But, you know, we lost our record deal after Far From Over came over. They, they had decided to shelve us before we even finished the record. They never really were that into him. And, and there, was a, there wasn't a second hit off of Messenger because they didn't get behind it, you know. And uh, they were just going to shelve us. And so they just dropped us two days before Christmas. You know, mm. we get dropped from Atlantic. I was like, good. Good. And then we, we ended up making three more records. So it was okay. You know, it, we, okay. we kept making records and he kept the band together throughout that whole time, that whole yeah. time period. Did you know. touring slow down or? No. If no. anything, it sped up because, you know, we had to work harder because we weren't on the radio. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Know. And was. it was a genius. He also did something that was, uh, uh, I'd never heard of anybody doing before. We were, um, we were at a point where we couldn't hit the Southeast anymore because we just hit him too many times, you know, so we had to lay off. Let the ground go fallow, whatever the yeah, you know, sure, the term sure, is. sure. And uh, but everybody needed to make some money, so he called Atlantic and said, "Yeah, I really need to get with my guys and write." Oh, well, that's not true. Everyone writes by himself mostly, you know, or writes yeah. with Maya or Pete. So, uh, um, but what he did was, we all went down to New Orleans and we rented a mansion down in the Garden District, and we just spent a month and a half just hanging out in New Orleans. And we didn't rehearse. We didn't write. We didn't do anything. <laughs> we set up gear, you know, but we didn't do anything. It was amazing. And so I just played golf every day and find new places to eat and was making some money. So um, while we were down there, uh, somebody put us on a bill on a show that they were doing. And the bill was the most amazing bill. It was a local band, then Edwin, then the Sub Dudes. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just greatest band ever. And then Cheap Trick, and then Los Lobos. I was like, this oh is the most genius gosh. bill of all time. Wow. So we're sitting there playing. We did our set. And at the time, I had a conga rig, and, and I was doing a rumba clave on a cowbell on the left foot, and playing congas, you know, like a tumbao with my left hand, mm-hmm. and a cascara with my right hand. And mm-hmm. I can't improvise over that like El Negro, but I worked it out. You yeah. know? So I'm playing this kind of thing. Well, Victor Bassetti was playing drums with uh, Los Lobos, mm-hmm. and he came up to me and he goes, dude, I really dig what you're doing with the Latin thing. I was like, oh, thanks, man. I'm the biggest Los Lobos fan you'll ever meet. Uh, yeah. You know, I've paid to see you guys a thousand times. He goes, you want to sit in with the band tonight? Oh, yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? I would love to. So, you know, second song, he waves me up. They got a big percussion. I didn't play kit, but they had a big percussion rig back there. So I'm sitting there playing percussion, just having the time. I know all the songs, you know. Yeah. My favorite part of the evening was uh, we were doing Masi Mas. Oh, and, off um, uh, Colossal Head? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Is it Colossal Head or is it... Yeah, it's Colossal Head. That's right. I get that great uh, this time. I, that's the best record ever. Love that record. But, uh, so we're doing Masi Mas, and I'm sitting there playing congas, and then uh, Hidalgo gives me a conga solo. He has no idea who I am. He doesn't know why I'm on the stage. He doesn't care. <laughs> this guy's give a shit button broke off a long time ago. Right, you know? right, right. So he's just like, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the conga drums. This guy, this guy back here. <laughs> but it was really sweet. And he came to me and he said, after the gig, Hidalgo came up to me and said, man, you're welcome to sit in with us anywhere, anytime. And I just bought tickets to see them after that. I was like, I'm not going to try to get lightning to hit this same stump again. This was a magical night. Let's leave it there. And then they got uh, Cougar Estrada. And I was like, okay, they upped the ante on stage quite a bit with percussion. So I'm going to back off. Did they have percussion before? They had it? a percussion rig and Victor was kind of their, uh, percussionist drummer and, and, uh, backline guy. Those guys, you know, they fly in, they yeah, don't, yeah, you know, yeah, they yeah. rent gear. And so Victor yeah. organizes, that's why he was there early enough to see our show. The band hadn't even got there yet. Okay. So like I said, the, nobody in the band knew why I was back there playing percussion. They didn't know who I was and nobody cared. They were fine with it. You know, that's awesome. They were, they were, it was an amazing night. It was one of the best nights I ever had. I don't, I think the one time I saw them, they didn't, I, I just 
I don't remember seeing a percussionist, so I don't know if maybe that changed. Yeah, maybe, maybe it might have changed the experience over. that they had. Yeah, like let's get a guy in here because this was awesome. And, you know, you mentioned Colossal Head, and Colossal Head taught me a great lesson. There's no such thing as bad drum sounds. There's just bad drummers. Because you listen to that first, you know, it's Pete Thomas, who's, you know, the most underrated, unspoke of drummer who can play like Jeff Beccaro or Keith Moon, depending on what the thing needs. Greatest drummer ever. But those drum sounds are terrible and they work so well. And that's when I just stopped caring about getting perfect, pristine drum sounds. They just don't, you know, that record blew my mind. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. Uh, Pete's a fan of the podcast too. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, hey, Pete Thomas, yeah. you're a genius. Yeah, <laughs> one of the best drummers ever. It, it, it's, we're trying to make it happen in person, but it might have to be over the phone. So we'll uh, you got to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get him. Get yeah. him. I mean, I'm, I want to hear what he has to say. Um, um, so as as I want to talk about uh, kind of as things slow down with Edwin, because there's always this relationship that we have with as drummers no matter how involved with the bands that we work or the artists that we work with. And, and it sounds like you had just the most ideal situation uh, oh, with yeah. Edwin yeah. as far as him involving you and just that level of, of creativity and respect. Yeah. Um, I never once worried that he was going to bring in a session drummer. I never once had that thought. Yeah. I was going to play drums on all his records. That's the way it yeah, was. Yeah. So. It sounds amazing. It that, was. That, but when all is said and done, we have to kind of think about the next step, right? the next thing. And what yeah. was the next thing for you? The next thing for me was um, having twins. Um, I, I got divorced and remarried. And, and uh, when the twins came, I was on the road again. And, you know, they were, they were very premature. They were supposed to come at the end of February and they came on Christmas Eve instead. Holy cow. And we had a standing date at the, uh, house of blues in Orlando the day after Christmas, I don't know, six years in a row or something like that. And that was our money run, you know, the mm-hmm. day after Christmas through new year's was when we went out and made money and I couldn't go. I had two kids in the NICU that were three pounds each. Mm-hmm. And this just fell on me. So, of course, who do you call? You call Nick Buda. Yeah. <laughs> so I called Nick, and I was like, dude, man. And I had used Nick to sub for me um, in October. My parents had their 50th. This was in 2000, 2004, October 2004. My parents had their 50th wedding anniversary. So I called Nick, and then anyone had a show. And my sisters and I were planning a big party for my parents. And I said, Evan, I can't do this show. I'm going to send a sub. And so I called Nick. And when I went back, I said, you know, I said to Evan, how was it? And he goes, that guy came looking for work, man. <laughs> It's like, yeah, he does that. He's yeah. good. He's real yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, so I had to call, you know, I called Nick, and fortunately he was in Columbia, South Carolina, very close to Greenville, mm-hmm. and he said, yeah, I can do it. So that was a huge relief for mm-hmm. me, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just want to say Nick Buta is my one friend that came to the NICU and went through the scrubbing. I mean, it's 20 minutes of the most intense scrubbing, like silkwood scrubbing oh, and gowned up and everything and came in and actually saw my babies when they were in the hospital. So That's amazing. I love Nick Buddha so much yeah. as a drummer, as a human being. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, uh, so when I finally did go back out on tour, I was just being drawn home. You know, I was, I was in that bad spot where when I wasn't on the road, I was pining for the road. And when I was on the road, I was pining for home. And I know that you felt that. You know, mm-hmm. and that's a tough spot to be in because you're never where you want to be, depending on which direction you look. But it really became more of a pining to get home. I just got to get home. I got to raise these kids. And my mm-hmm. son, Nicholas, you know, the first five years of his life, I was gone a lot. 
And mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. difficult to raise a kid from 700 miles away. Mm-hmm. And so I just had to make a decision. And mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, things are slowing down a little bit with Edwin. The money's getting lower and, and uh, it's time to go, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, my relationship with Edwin McCain is fantastic. In fact, I just played on three songs on a record he's working on now. That's and awesome. they still call me to sub whenever they need someone to sub for Tez. They still call me and I come out and do it. And, okay. You know, they're still my best friends. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's, that's really good. Yeah. And, and uh, when was the decision to go back to school? When did that happen? Or was it really close after your twins no, were born? No, I, I hung out for about a year and a half before I decided to go back to school, a year and a half, two years, just picking up whatever sessions I could pick up. But, you know, the session thing had slowed down quite a bit, and I yeah. was gone. I wasn't I wasn't a Nashville guy, so it was almost like starting over from scratch. Yeah. And I had a few, you know, fortuitous things. Nick uh, recommended me to Nathan Chapman for a session, and I did a couple of demo sessions with him. And then the Taylor Swift thing, they wanted to put drums on her song, Teardrops on My Guitar, and Nick was in South Africa. It was like two days after Christmas, mm-hmm. and Nathan called me and asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said, sure. I didn't even know who she was. Yeah. I was that out of touch, you know. Well, but, I don't think anybody big, did. She hadn't had a giant hit yet. You right, know? That right. was her first really big monster hit. So I played drums on it, and, you know, thank Thank you, Nick, and thank you, Nathan, for that opportunity. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just uh, little by little. The other big catalyst was um, I got a call from Peter Frampton's management, and they asked me if I wanted to audition. And I said, yeah, since about 76, I've been wanting to play with Peter. So <laughs> you know, what do we need to do? And, man, I never worked so hard for an audition in my life. Now, I am 0 for 26 on an audition. <laughs> the, only, the only gig I ever got hired on was Faith Hill on an audition and I got fired the next day. So I'm 0 for 26 on auditions. I just don't audition well. <laughs> that's that's a common sentiment, man. Yeah. Trust Edwin's me. Never, you're, you're, yeah, please. You're Edwin's in good company. person ever. You know, he just, he, he trusts his bandmates. Is this the guy you want? You know, when we made a change in the bass player position, he called me up, who do you want? I said, I want Lee Hendricks, of course. Yeah. And so he hired Lee Hendricks, you know. Right. So, right. and that's the, the better way to do it. Anyway, so uh, the Frampton thing. So, you know, a lot of drummers went and tried out. And my first audition with Frampton was two and a half hours long. I mean, I sat in a room with him playing for two and a half hours. Wow. And uh, I, but I had put in unbelievable amounts of time in learning that show. And I, and I knew Oddly Freed was playing the gig. So I called yep. Oddly a couple of times and I was like, hey, man. You what know, year was this? I'm sorry. This was, oh, man, this is going to be tough now. See how this is. This 2006. Okay, I was going to say like between six, seven years. It was two thousand seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, they sent me a copy of a live show. I loaded it into Pro Tools. I mic'd up my kit, and I practiced that show three hours a day for a month. Mm-hmm. You know, and I knew every nuance of what was going on. And I would call Oddly and say, "Man, I'm baby, baby, I love your way." It seems like the tempo lags, you know, considerably, like four or five beats a minute every time it gets to the chorus. But Sean Fichter's way too good a drummer for that to be an accident. Mm-hmm. So is that coming from Peter? Mm-hmm. And he's like, dude, you are so getting this gig. <laughs> you oh, know, wow. I went at it that hard. Didn't yeah. tell Soul either. Didn't tell anybody I was contacted, yeah, uh-huh, you know? Uh-huh. So um, after they did the whole week of auditions, they called two guys back. And it was me and Dan, I want to say, Wojciechowski. But he was with Olivia Newton-John before that. And okay. I had subbed for him with the Olivia Newton-John gig. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, when you're listening to a guy, you get really deep into their music. Sure. And I, I was like, this guy's a monster. So it came down to me and him, which I was proud of, but I didn't get the gig. Mm-hmm. They went with Dan. Mm-hmm. And uh, the nicest thing I can say about that was about three days later, I get a call. I'm in Sam's Club buying diapers. You know, we bought <laughs> diapers by the hundreds back then. <laughs> Pissing and shitting machines. So uh, um, I'm buying diapers and I get this phone call. I don't recognize the number and I answer it. And it was Peter Frampton. And That's, he called me yeah. and he wanted to thank me for the time that I had put in. <sighs> 
and compliment me on my playing. And he said, you know, I know we're going to work together someday, which is code for we're never going to work together. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I just told him, I said, well, dude, you're a class act. Nobody calls the musician they didn't hire and thanks them for auditioning. I've never heard of such a thing before. Me neither. he's, He's a hero in my book. I love that guy. Yeah. And I didn't get the gig and that was it. I was like, that's as hard as I've ever worked. And then things got bleak. And I started trying to cash in on some of the goodwill. I'd worked with some people that were big Edwin fans, and they, you know, complimentary. I grew up going to shows and listening, and I would hear about a gig opening up, and I would hit the phone and make calls, try to get in, and nobody was calling me back. Mm. Nobody was, like, there was nothing to cash in on. And I was like, you know what? This isn't going to work. I'm not going to live my life like this. Mm. You know, and at the same time, there were also out other influences. We talked about that earlier, like uh, the the school to prison pipeline. You know, I was starting to go like, I think I can help. I think I can get in there and help be part of the solution instead of just knowing that this huge problem exists. So I remember I talked to Lee Hendricks and I said, yeah, I'm going back to school. I'm going to be a teacher. He said, of course you are. You've always been a teacher. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It was a nice yeah. thing to hear. So yeah. that was kind of the cap, like the, the loss of the Frampton thing was, was kind of like what that, that got me. I was like, I'm, I, that's the best I could do. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it came down to me and another awesome drummer and I didn't get it. And I'm tired of mm-hmm, this you know mm-hmm. it wasn't believe me going back to school did not give me any rest you know no. getting a job as a teacher and does having not twins. Give me any rest yeah know? but how did that feel when you made that decision um was it a tough decision did it take a while to sink in or was it just a weight lifted it was a little of both and it still is a little of both mm-hmm. you know what i missed out on is is nashville music is now the music there's no Aerosmith, well, maybe, but I mean, there's no bands that are on the radio that are touring that are rock and roll. Everything is country now. Those mm. are what's playing the stadiums. So my friends are posting pictures on Facebook, playing in front of 100,000 people, mm. and I missed out on all of that. And I like to think I could have gotten one of those kind of gigs, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. I was just, I was driven to this other thing. So I was really running towards something, not thinking about what, what I was running away from. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had gone as far as I could go with subbing. I was starting to design my own lesson plans. I, was start- I, I need to become a teacher of record. I need to get a license and I need to do this. So everything was just pushing towards that, trying to get that job. It wasn't about the money, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, this job is not about the money. And I mean, the, yeah. the weirdest thing about it is when you're in the music business, you always think, well, my ship could come in. Anything could happen. Yeah. I know what it's like to have someone give me a check for $10,000 out of the blue. I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. That's never <laughs> We're done with all that, you know. It's um, I can I can look on a website and tell you what I'm going to be making in 15 years, you know. Wow. It's a done deal, but it's not a lot of money, but it's good work, and and the state, you know, it's a it's decent government work. I mean, they they take care of. I have a my oldest son has chronic asthma, so he's in the hospital a lot. I have to look at those things. Those are important things to right, me. Right. The 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 really difficult part is continuing to be a drummer, continuing to play. And uh, there are a lot of nights where, you know, I, I got to get up at 530 in the morning, and get ready to go to work and do a really hard job. And I was at the family wash at one in the morning that the night before, Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. playing a gig for almost no money, you know, yeah. but I wanted to keep my skill level up. Yeah. And I still get calls, you know, Edwin yeah. still calls with weird gigs or fun gigs or whatever gigs, you know, uh-huh. and other people will call and, and session work, you know, I, I don't get a lot of it. I never did get a lot of it. 
Yeah. I'm not, it's not like, oh, I used to have a 10, a 2, and a 6. My joke is, I got a 10, a 2, and a 6. My 10 is this week. My 2 is two weeks from now. My right. 6 is sometime next month, you know? Yeah. Right, right. But I was never that guy. So right. it wasn't like I was, you know, running away from something that I knew. Um, but uh, uh, I love to play the drums. I love to hit things. I love to make music. I love it more than anything in the world. And I'm just going to keep on doing it. So yeah. I play in several bands around town. Yeah. Um, I just did a gig with uh, Nanette Bohannon. We've got, it's all, that gig is fun. We do four Mother's Finest songs. We do four Rufus songs. I mean, come on. Yeah. That's, my, that's my junior high you know, yeah. dream gig. Yeah. So, um, and I work with Eric Hamilton a lot, who's an amazing singer-songwriter mm-hmm. um, that I just adore as a human being. And mm-hmm. the guys in those, in those bands are my family. We've been playing together for over 20 years. Do you feel like you can be just you can be a little bit more picky about who you want to work with? I mean, to me, it sounds like you've always chosen or you've always worked with people you've wanted to work with. I've been lucky. I've been lucky to work with people that I wanted to work with. I took everything. And that's still the struggle is I don't fiscally have to take everything, but I'm still struggling with musically. Do I have to take everything? Mm-hmm. You know, do I, do I feel obligated to take every single gig that comes down the pike? And that's always been my policy. Play every single gig and let the accountants sort it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Couple, couple Augusts ago, I got a call from Craig with Edwin's band. Said, we need you to come to Aspen and play congas for half an hour at a show. And I was like, okay. So I flew on, I got on a plane Saturday morning, flew to Aspen. They had a conga, they had like congas there. And I played, you know, playing out beyond congas is stupid, but that was the gig, right? So I played, literally it was half an hour. We were ignored by a bunch of really rich people. And then they put me on a plane and flew me home. And the next day I got a check for $1,000. And I was like, $1,000 for half an hour playing congas. I was probably the highest paid congaro in the world for that half an hour. (laughs) Think Gee, about Bonnie how much Hidalgo you get paid. doesn't make a thousand dollars a half an hour. Did you hit the drums a thousand times? That's no, just... <laughs> no. I guarantee. I guarantee. I made more than a dollar a hit. So, you know, that gig was one that paid too much. There've been a lot of gigs that paid too little. Right. I don't care. Yeah. I'm trying to get back to that original feeling. The first song I ever played with other guys. Say that again, because we. I don't think I was recording, and you said this. And yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's and, it's. I want to get back to what it felt like the first time I did it. That was the best. That was the best time I ever had in my whole life. It wasn't the Tonight Show. It wasn't looking at twenty five thousand people. It was playing in in uh, Bob Kessler's basement, and the first song we played was "Can't Get Enough of Your Love" by Bad Company, mm-hmm. and that's the best feeling I've ever had in my entire mm-hmm. life. And mm-hmm. everything has been a desire to get that feeling again. I'm just going for it. And I, I hit and I miss, but I mean, I, I am totally dedicated to how much fun this is. I didn't play drums because I thought I could make money at it. I didn't play drums because yeah. I wanted to have a career. I haven't yeah. even had a career. I've had a collection of experiences. You know, I don't consider it a career. There's no arc. It's just, I just play drums, you know, and I do it because I can't think of anything cooler to do. You know, yesterday I came home from work and I was like, that was a great day. I just made a record with James Gadsden. You know, that's a red letter day for me. That's a, I'm putting that on the calendar, you know. Mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. I've had so many amazing experiences and I'm so grateful. I never got over it. Every gig I ever played with Edwin, at some point during the gig, I was like, I'm in a band. We're playing, we're headlining this club. We never got to Enormo Domes. We played House of Blues. Enormo Dome, yeah. love that. <laughs> so, um, but... I'm doing this gig, and over there playing sax and keyboards is my best friend. 
somebody I've been friends with for 37 years, and mm-hmm. we're doing this together. Mm-hmm. When we dreamed about doing it, listening to Tower of Power and Average White Band in his basement, we didn't have the balls to dream of doing it together, mm-hmm. and here we are doing it together. Whenever I play with Edwin now, there's a point every single night in between songs, I will look at his bass player, Jason, and I'll say, hey, man, I get to be in a band with Larry Chaney tonight. Larry Chaney's the most amazing musician you'll ever meet. You know, and I, it... I, it I, it was never lost on me. I never got over it. It mm. was Christmas morning every single day. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and it still is. It's just, it's yeah. a miracle. And, you know, I don't know. How would you describe Edwin McCain's music? Um, you know, that was an interesting thing because they, when we were working on the record, there was a lot of conflict about, you know, we need a rock hit. We need a rock hit. And I remember like he took me one time to Atlantic Records office and we're in Jason Flom's office with like Hootie and the Blowfish's manager and mm-hmm. and they're talking about this need for a rock hit. And mm-hmm. and they and somebody said, Well, what do you think? And I was just I was over putting. I was just, you know, staying out of the meeting. And I said, Well, here's what I think. I don't think people that listen to Edwin are gonna listen are gonna go through Lincoln Park to get to him. He's not a rock artist. He's a CHR artist. I think people that listen to Bonnie Raitt and James Taylor and people like that. Edwin's music is, um, it's steeped in a Southern R&B uh, uh, culture. Uh, his, his, his voice is amazing, but his lyrics are about something. It's mm-hmm. never, mm-hmm. it's rarely, rarely ambiguous. And then when it is ambiguous, that's even beautiful too. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about mm-hmm. that line, you know, um, I'll be a love suicide. And I asked him, what does that mean? He goes, I don't know. It's the way it rolled into my head. Yeah. And you know, producers begged him to change the line. Yeah. Oh, to the point where they, they put it in a movie one time and they chopped the line out. Oh, he made wow. a lot of money off that mistake. <laughs> you know, but um, he, so he, he is an, uh, an R&B-based uh, acoustic guitar slinging songwriter who mm-hmm. just writes, plays, and sings better than anyone else of his generation. He's the best Mm -hmm. at it. He's not the most successful in terms of record sales or billions of dollars made or whatever, but he's the best. And uh, uh, for him to come to me and trust me with his, what he does, Mm -hmm. you know, to say, okay, I have this and I'm going to trust you to put it in the right place. That was a huge responsibility that I took very seriously. I'm not a guy who says, you know, I need to work on my paradiddles today. And I'm going to sit and play paradiddles and move them around the kit. I'm not that guy. I'm not a chops guy. I'm not that guy. But I am driven by what my next assignment is. And this is one of the things that I love about the, the, the loud jams, the Tom Hurst loud jams. The last one that they did, I played a fishbone song that was double kick all the way through. And wow. that is not in my wheelhouse at all. <laughs> so, I mean, literally the blisters are just starting to go away from all the practicing I did just for that stupid no pay one song. I put in hours and hours. <laughs> you know, wow. and I, was, I wanted to learn how to do that. I wanted to pay homage yeah. to, I think, you know, Fish, whatever his last name, Fish Fishman, and Phil Fishman, the drummer from Fishbone. Okay. It's just the best mm-hmm. he was like neil pert with solid r&b feel you know <laughs> and so i wanted to do that so it, it if it takes a little practice then that's what i'm going to do right um so I, and i've always been that way i want to learn this yeah. so what skill set do i need to know well once i apply that skill set to learning it i have it now it's in the bank yeah. and if i need to whip it out and bring it over here the other thing that i think a lot of drummers miss too you know everybody loves steve gadd get outside the box Everybody loves Steve Gadd. Everybody loves Vinnie Caliuta. You can't do what Vinnie Caliuta does. I'm sorry, I don't, 
you can't, I can't, nobody mm-hmm. can't. He's mm-hmm. a he's in a world, he's in a class, he's like there's Buddy Rich and then there's Vinny Calyuta yeah, and it goes yeah, down from there. And you can be inspired by him, and certainly I was. I mean, there was a time I was dissecting him to the point where I called him at home. In <laughs> 82 or 83, mm-hmm. 82, I think it was. I'm sitting there, I can't figure out this, the second verse of Keep It Greasy from Joe's Garage. And so I'm like, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to call Vinny. I'm going to, so no cell phones, you know, yeah. 411. Yeah, I'm looking, director says, yeah, Sherman Oaks, California. Let's try that. Vincent or Vinny Kaliuda spelled it out for him. Yeah. They gave me a number. I called it. He answered the phone, talked to me for an hour. Oh. Broke it down, talked about twos and threes, you know. So there was a time when I was really into that kind of thing. Well, I don't know if I'm going to steal something from Joe's Garage or whether I'm going to steal something from Barrymore Barlow, who's one of my favorite drummers ever, yeah. or if I'm going to steal something from Robbie McIntosh, which I totally am, or whether I'm going to take a Ferroni or whether I'm going to take a yeah. Gap. You know, if I take something that they had and apply it to something completely different and people go, ooh, he's so innovative, I'm just copying I'm not innovative. I'm not smart enough to be innovative. Vinny's innovative. I'm just a, I'm, my, my collection of who I've listened to ranges from Papa Joe Jones mm-hmm. to uh, who's the kid that I'm seeing on in New York all the time, the real linear. But yeah, we'll go with Jojo Mayer for that. Sure. Who's the next He's on Bowie's last record. Al Wilson turned me on to him. He's unbelievable. Yes. Can't think of his. This terrible. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's amazing. In post, you can. Tell everybody what his name is. No, no, on Bowie's the very last record yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's like the New York guy, and he's 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 kind of reinventing the language yet again. But I mean, everything from like you know, you I know, thought it was Matt Chamberlain on the on the track, but it's not. No, it's this it's just a new yeah, it's this yeah, new guy. But yeah. Chamberlain's another one. Oh, you know, I know he's I know, I know. he's. Uh, but I think I know what you're saying because there's gigs that are coming up, or there's songs I need to learn and and things I need to work on, and then I have a list. Like I have a a running list in iTunes and, and, and Spotify that, that, uh, work on these songs and they're songs that I know probably they're tower power songs or whatever that I know I'll probably never play in a band, but they're songs that I just want to dig into for no reason. Then if some of that juju gets in on my hands and my feet in just on my gig, then I'm happy. Yeah. Because I just have to go there. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Wish, and yeah. it, and it, and you know, it may. You know, you're not going to play soul vaccination as a beat to a song, but yeah. it might yeah. make a cool fill or parts yeah. of that. Whatever skill you learn, that linear thing might make that great fill that someone else wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, you know, that's why I love this podcast. It's just so about learning about drums. It's just well, you know, it's I can I can uh, take a like a record and uh, I don't like to listen to myself, but sometimes I'll go and I'll say. I remember where that fill came from. Yeah. And sometimes it's that, and it's like, ah, that's my Matt Chamberlain yeah. thing that I heard on that Fiona Apple song. Yeah. And if then, you're not stealing from Matt Chamberlain, you're missing something great. Right. <laughs> uh, somebody said, what about this? Well, I got that from a Rush song. That's it. And what about that when you go, I got that from Rich Redman. Right. From a. Um, I don't know a, a, a country song that I had to learn for a gig once. And yep. I thought that's cool. Hey, I know, and I know it's rich. Yeah. So it gets into your system. It does. Either your buddies, great, wonderful peers. Yeah. That you or your heroes that yeah. seem untouchable, except 
when you dial 411 and say, I need Vinny's number. <laughs> yeah. That was a ballsy move. And he was so kind. He was so nice, you yeah, know, and he yeah. was just on the cover of Modern Drummer for the first time, like a, a month or two before that. Oh. So, I mean, it was, you know, he was, I, I, don't, I can't believe he was home. It was in the middle of the daytime. We need to quit using it as wallpaper and start using it as the fabric of a society. Thank That's you. what they do in Africa. It's what they do in Brazil. Thank you. I mean, that, and that's the deep end of the pool. I mean, if the, if the deepest end of the pool is tabla, and clearly it is, <laughs> the, the South American stuff has got Well, to, and, and, you know. and I think that, that American culture and the mix of it has a lot to offer. Yeah. You know, I'll get behind it. You know, I'm not going to say, I wish we were like this. I wish we were like that musically. No, we've got a lot to offer. I mean, yeah. Jesus, we, we introduced jazz to the world. Yeah. If we can do that, yeah. we can do anything. Absolutely. I mean, come on. Absolutely. We did need to expose people. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing I yes. want to ask about. Sure. Golf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I used to play golf like it was my job. Parallels. Between playing drums and playing golf. Golf is infinite improvisation. It is mm. no two shots are ever the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a huge parallel for me. You know, mm. the way the ball's lay, laying, the way, uh, you know, how is your swing today? We've all had a day on the golf course. Like Eric Hamilton said to me one day, he goes, I think we can get your ball retriever regripped when we make the turn. <laughs> like you're just having the shittiest day imaginable playing golf. Well, we've all had this playing drums. Yeah. I had one in front of Kevin Murphy, Nick Buda, Al Wilson one time. I was, they got there, and I was four bars into the gig, and I knew that I was in trouble. Uh, like I didn't have access to the lower part of my parking garage. You know, it was just it was closed off today. I'm not going to get down there. And I knew it immediately, and I was miserable. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole thing was playing out in my head. Yeah. Um, golf will punish you for a great shot, you know. But um, the other parallels about it, one of the reasons I took to it so much is I realized, especially when I started playing with Craig Wright and Lee Hendricks, and the three of us played, we've probably played 100 rounds of golf together. Um, we never got a cart. We walked the course, and I, I found myself walking up a steep hill, breathing through my nose, completely relaxed, completely just, you know, in this moment, you know, really that uh, there's a lot of zen in golf. There's mm-hmm. a ton of zen in drumming, mm-hmm. you know. Um, now, what golf will never be is TM, and drumming can really be transcendental meditation. It mm-hmm. totally can mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. In fact, I know that because in uh, at WVU, we had this huge collection of African instruments that was like 150 years old, and we would get together on Saturday mornings and play a beat for two hours without mm-hmm. variation. Yeah. And boy, that's TM right there. Yeah. You know? yeah. But uh, those are the, the parallels between golf and... And, um, and <clears throat> the other parallel for me personally was I was never great off the tee. I never hit a long ball in my life. You know, the longest drive I ever hit in my life was probably 225 when I really just accidentally nutted one, you know. Mm-hmm. But the closer I got to the green, the better I got. And mm-hmm. when I, once I was on the green, I'll get you there in two putts. I don't mm-hmm. care where I am. I'll get you there in two, usually. You okay. know, I can putt. And that's my drumming thing. I've never been fast. You know, I went to my drum teacher one time. I said, dude, I'm working on getting fast and I can't, I'm, it's not coming. And I've been working legitimately hard at it. And he says, well, can you run fast? I was like, no. He goes, can you swim fast? I was like, no. He goes, well, what do you do fast? I was like, nothing. He goes, well, what makes you think you're going to play fast? It's not for everybody. You don't need it. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I had the Hasey Dixie gig, that gig was a lot of training. He's like, and I had the chops to do it. So I had enough, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm not going to blow anybody away with my chops, but I can work, you know. So he got me concentrating on other things. Same thing with golf, you know. I'm not going to be great off the tee. 
quit trying to hit the 250 yard ball. So I know very little about, about golf, uh-huh. but I, I, I just wonder just cause there, I understand there is that psychology behind it. And uh-huh. sometimes it's, it's good days and bad days yeah. and, and we all have that. And I think that we have those moments. I, I love outdoor things. Right. I, like, I, I love bike riding and mountain biking and, sure. and even hiking and running and oh, just yeah. being out. And I try and think it's like, how are these things connected? Because for many of us, drumming is like breathing. Yeah. It's, it's a part of our soul. And no matter what we do, no matter if we're, you know, teaching or working, doing other things and not working as quote unquote full time drumming, right. it's always a part of us. It's yeah. always, I mean, I guess I have, as I'm transitioning and trying to figure out how to manage my on the road and, and family, it's, it, I, I get so much peace in the fact that I know that I'll play drums for the rest of my life. Yeah. In whatever capacity. Yeah. I will too. I mean, yeah. you know, my, the, the principal bassist of the Atlanta Symphony died on stage. Playing the song, yes. no business like show business. She was like the longest running. Yeah. And I've worked of with that. her. I've played with Have the Atlanta Symphony several times with Edwin, and I just yeah, thought to myself, I should be so lucky. That's yeah. the best out I've ever heard of in my entire life. As opposed to laying in some bed for a long time, or whatever. There's no business like show business, and your heart stops and it's over right then and there. And you have a, and you have a bass in your hand. Yeah, that's yeah. the best death I've ever heard of in my yeah. entire life. I should be so lucky. That's my plan. Yeah. That's my plan. Or, you know, most likely I'll get hauled out of a classroom, toes up, you know, because my retirement plan isn't really, you know, <laughs> there's no 401k in this business. So, yeah, I'm pretty much planning on dying on the job. But, uh, no, I think um, uh, that it's that feel, And you're, you're comfortable when you're behind the drums. You know who you are. You, you know you're doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And in the absence of that feeling, sometimes a, a round of golf or a nice walk. And I've replaced all that with fishing. I fish constantly in the summertime i'm in the harpeth river just okay. fishing i don't care if i catch anything or not just the zen of mm-hmm. trying to throw mm-hmm. that lure right where i want it to go and, mm-hmm. and then oh hey there's an otter and there's yeah. a bald eagle and there's a water moccasin you know but just yeah. being outside and and yeah. i think it's very connected yeah. to what i do yeah i feel like we've covered <laughs> a few this. things <laughs> yeah no no I appreciate you oh, taking the time. It was so nice of you to ask. I yeah. mean, I felt weird about it because I'm a fourth grade elementary school teacher, but, no. you know, no, we did I, one of the drummer or the loud jams and I did uh, Gino Vanelli's Brother to Brother and some some kid, like a young guy comes over and goes, I've seen you play a couple of times. Who are you? And yeah. I just said, I'm a fourth grade elementary school teacher and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Nashville, bitch. <laughs> It's hard, exactly. but no, this was so much fun, and I listen to the podcast regularly. Thank you. Yeah, Thank it's you. it's in my my uh, uh, rotation of eight podcasts that I have to follow. But I love this one. I think it's the best musician podcast I've ever heard because it is so positive and it's so education driven, and that says a lot about the way you handle it. You Thank know? you, man. It's uh, I, it comes from a very selfish place. I, I just I just want to know. I feel like I'm running out of time, and I just want to I want to answer a ton of questions. And uh, it has a lot to do with, you know, what other people are doing. And it's like, how are you doing it? What's going on? Absolutely. There's the door of the That's dog. That's the end of the podcast. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much. So there you go. Uh, Dave is one of those guys that has been a huge supporter of the podcast. Uh, even early on, uh, his feedback has always been positive and 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 I honestly, I really appreciate it. I appreciate his interest. I appreciate him uh, listening and spreading the word for us. Um, he is an insightful guy, 
and uh, a great player. He's had uh, lots of great experiences uh, on the road, and I appreciate him taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Um, As always, my thanks to Michael Jackson uh, for his technical support. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. And uh, thanks for everyone listening. Um, Again, if you hashtag Working Drummer, we will find it and share it on all our social media outlets. Uh, It's been fun. It's been successful. Please keep doing that, um, and uh, we'll share your videos and pictures and all those good things. So again, thanks for listening. I appreciate it, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.